Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello everyone and welcome to the Stem Cells at Lunch podcast. Uh, my name's Pete and I'm a PhD student here at the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. And today I'm joined by Kevin Egan, who is a Professor of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University and a recipient of numerous awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship. Uh, he's widely known for his early work on cellular plasticity and reprogramming and has pioneered the use of induced pluripotent stem cells for disease modelling. In particular, his lab has been focused on understanding neurodegeneration in ALS. And more recently, he has extended this expertise to study psychiatric disorders uh, as Director of Stem Cell Biology at the Broad Institute. So thanks, Kevin, for taking the time to speak to us today. So perhaps maybe if you could start by just telling us a bit about your research career and what you're currently kind of interested in, what your lab's focused on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. First of all, let me just thank you, Peter, for inviting me to be here today. Um, it's a great pleasure to, to speak to your audience and have the opportunity to say a little bit about our work. As you say, we've long been interested in stem cell and reprogramming approaches. And you know, while those approaches have incredible promise for cell replacement therapies and even tissue replacement therapies in the future, um, our, our interest has really been, I would say, focused on a different application of, of those technologies, which has been to really try to understand um, why certain genetic variation only affects some of our body. You know, you know, really, the mutations that we inherit from our parents um, are found in you know every cell of our body. But why do certain diseases only make parts of our bodies sick? Um, and, and great examples um, of this are things like nervous system disorders, um, where the mutations that cause things like motor neuron disease um, are in genes which function in cells throughout the body. But for some reason, um, just the, the part of our brain which connects our, our um, sort of thinking nervous system to our musculature degenerates. So, you know, why is that? Um, similarly, in psychiatric um, disorders, there's common genetic variation, which we all carry to some extent, but that when concentrated in certain people, um, leads to psychiatric conditions like autism spectrum disorders and, and schizophrenia. So, so why is that? You know, and I think one of the reasons why we haven't made a lot of progress in studying those types of conditions is really that it's hard to actually obtain the cells that become ill. And you know, to some extent for, for psychiatric conditions, you know, mice don't even necessarily have the parts of the brain that we think of as being most affected. So, you know, making animal models and studying them can be challenging. So, you know, I think those are two sort of good explanations for why we haven't necessarily made great progress in studying those conditions. Another is that um, these are generally inaccessible parts of our body. And, you know, that's really in contrast to something like cancer, where, in cancer, when you're ill with a tumor, um, the doctors and the surgeons um, will surgically resect or remove um, that illness. And, you know, they don't usually just throw it away. It usually ends up in a scientist's lab somewhere and, um, and they end up studying that, that tumor and how it's changed and how it might be contributing to make somebody ill. 
So um, those scientists are lucky because they get to study the actual disease and understand how it's changed and actually have access to it to try to treat it with drugs or try different scientific tests on it to understand how it can be combated. And I think that's a huge contributor to why we've so, made so much progress in the field of cancer therapeutics or oncology. And the real challenge in neuroscience has been that, you know, in neurodegenerative conditions, by the time that someone is sick, the stuff that you want to study is gone, you know, and, you know, the, the, the very process that you, un, that you want to understand to try to stop actually takes the cells away from you. So there is nothing left. And in something like psychiatry, where you can kind of be aware in the early stages that it might be happening, you know, brain biopsies are not something that people feel, nor should they necessarily feel comfortable with. And so actually getting pieces of tissue from people while the disease is, is, you know, going on is very rare. And to the extent which postmortem samples are available even from psychiatric patients, um, you know, that's many, many, many years after the disease first unfolded. And so it's very hard to deconvolute later effects of aging from the things that actually drove the disease. So the hope has been that by taking advantage of stem cell biology, we could make cell types that were previously inaccessible for study and um, understand how the genetic variation that predisposes people to these disorders changes those cells for the first time and give us the type of opportunity to study the disorders prospectively that um, our colleagues working on cancer have had for many years. So, as you mentioned, uh, since you finished your PhD, you pioneered the use of induced pluripotent stem cells for disease modelling. So you were the first lab to generate uh, an IPS line from someone with a disease. And specifically, that disease, as you mentioned, was uh, motor neuron disease. Um, so I guess at the time, did you realise how influential this would be and how much the field of stem cell-based disease modelling would, would grow in the years afterwards? And then, I guess, following from that, how... Do you see the future of stem cell-based disease modeling? You know, what are the main challenges and how, how are we going to address these? Yeah, I, I think that it is pretty impressive now that it just sort of seems like something that everybody does now. You know, I think that this, this recognition that studying human biology has its advantages is kind of won the day. And that whether it's in academics or an industry, these models have become really ingrained in, in everyone's collective consciousness and, and are part of you know, programs to develop all sorts of therapies. You know, I, I think that this, like anything else, has kind of had its, you know, revolution, you know, where there was this huge upswing in enthusiasm, but the realization that there were major challenges, this kind of pit of despair afterwards, and now we're in this very productive phase where, you know, the, the technology is really, I would say, paying off. And, you know, the things that contributed to that pit of despair are kind of all the things that make stem cells incredible tools, but only if, but they're like a very, you know, powerful machine or animal that needs to be harnessed, you know, in order to be able to have something positive come from it, right? The ability to make all the different cells in the body, which stem cells have, means that they have incredible differential differentiation potential, but, but that potential has to be controlled through very careful differentiation schemes. And you know, the cell types that you want to study need to be purified or understood well enough so that you can take this remarkable capacity for self-renewal and differentiation and turn it into an experimental system that you can use. And, you know, I think most of the challenges really arose out of that. At the beginning, there were difficulties because the ability to direct um, stem cells to make the cell types of interest was not very good. 
And now we have a much more robust kind of cookery book for making different cell types and purifying them. And I think this is uh, this plus gene editing strategies and single cell sequencing strategies have, have really revolutionized our ability to extract meaningful information from these powerful models. So my next question is quite a niche one because I work in, in stem cell modeling of ALS as well. I've, I saw your recent back-to-back -back, uh, Matters Arising articles in Neuron that showcased contradictory findings that you made with uh, to another group. Um, so specifically, you found that a certain mouse model of ALS, um, the C9 off expansion model, didn't show any disease-specific phenotypes, but the other group had found that it did, did show a uh, disease-specific phenotype. So could you please kind of talk a little bit about this? Maybe, um, you know, do you think it's important for researchers and particularly journals to do more to highlight uh, contradictory findings like these ones? I think it's an essential part of the scientific process. And, you know, I think that it's key that either through, you know, publications in separate journals or through these kinds of matter arising formats that there can be a dialogue in the press. And, you know, the science progresses through replication, verification, validation, extension. And it, it's how we build a common um, language of reliability and results. And, you know, I think that it's, a, it, it's important to point out, you know, not only the discrepancies and top line findings, um, but also to try to strive um, really with intensity to try to understand why there might be differences in findings. Um, and of course, you know, we, we, we have been part of this kind of thinking around CNRF72, which is the most commonly mutated gene in ALS for quite some time, um, because it's still very unclear to people how this mutation um, predisposes people to motor neuron disease. And the mutation does a lot of different things to the gene, probably even affects nearby genes, this mutation. So, you know, understanding that has been really central to trying to understand why so many people, particularly of European descent, um, become ill. And I, I wouldn't say that we've really figured it out. Certainly attempts to model the um, effects of toxic factors that are made by this mutation in mice has not been reliable. And, you know, there are now many different papers describing several different versions of this model. Um, and it's, it's not clear to me um, that there are toxic effects in rodents of this mutation. Um, you know, but we've been boiled in the same problem in, um, in trying to understand loss of function of this gene too. And, um, you know, we and others have described really substantial changes in um, inflammation in the brain um, when this gene is not expressed. Um, but others didn't find that. And in a series of papers, um, you know, we've really been able to show that that's due to environmental effects and in fact, effects um, of how the contents of the gut interact with the um, immune system and ultimately the nervous system. And so we can't be sure that there's not some kind of environmental influence on these models too. Although I think that in this particular case, probably the best evidence points towards some kind of discrepancies around the genetic backgrounds of models and what they mean for studying um, nervous system disorders. So, you know, there's more to figure out there, but I think it's really important that people focus on 
um, trying to understand when something isn't working, why it's not working, and try to see it through the, the lens of those that did see it and try to understand what, what might be going on. It seems a very important thing to kind of get figured out quite early on because I know there's a big move to move away from using uh, SOD1 uh, mouse models of ALS. And so there's a big kind of interest in finding the next, the next mouse model of ALS. And I think sorting out these things early on, it seems a pretty, pretty major thing to, to get right. So I guess my last question, uh, looking through your CV, you might be fooled into thinking that forging a successful scientific career is quite easy. Um, so I guess what I want to know is what have been the biggest challenges uh, in your career? Uh, what do you find most challenging about doing research day to day? And then maybe on top of that, you know, what are the most rewarding aspects as well? No, the most rewarding aspects are definitely seeing young people succeed in science. And, you know, seeing them grow in their maturity, you know, as they advance through their training and um, become incredible scientists in their own right. Like, I think looking back on this phase of my career, there's no doubt that that is it. And, you know, that that far, 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 far supersedes, you know, other, other types of discoveries, really. It's been exciting to see these um, models go from kind of proof of concept to something useful for understanding degenerative processes and to see the first um, um, candidate therapies go into the clinic that were discovered with these types of models. That's very exciting to me. And, you know, I think as far as challenges go, you know, I would say uh, we're all getting busier and the field has grown. Um, and we, and I think that, um, you know, peer review and grants and papers continues to become more and more challenging with people spending less time on it and probably doing less service to peer review. And really need to think about how we handle that process. And, you know, it's quite interesting, I think, you know, to, to think about what is the, and it kind of gets to this point before, you know, how should we think about adjudicating peer review? Should we be sure in absolutely no uncertain terms the result is right? And that should be the standard? Should it be a preponderance of the evidence is good? You know, should we encourage publication of exciting results with the proper textual qualifications if um, there is some uncertainty? You know, so what role does getting it right the first time through stringent peer review versus letting an interesting idea and striking data kind of emerge into the field to be validated by others. You know, wh where where is the right line? And I think that we need to continue to have a conversation about that and about the role of peer review and publishing and how to think about it. I think we definitely need to think about that in a world where we want to, you know, sort of be more inclusive and um, give greater opportunity to more and more scientists to have their viewpoints heard. So that's something that I think is frustrating and it is maybe holding the field back. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for speaking to us. It's a lot to, lot to think about. Um, yeah, we really appreciate having you on the, on the podcast. Thanks, Peter, for having me on the podcast. It's been great to join you and, and congratulations on, uh, on how it's been going. Thanks, Kevin. And thank you to everyone for listening to the Stem Cells at Lunch podcast.